as a kid, I thought going to prison was a badge of honor. So I was like, I got to go to prison so that I can become a, a man now, a real man. The streets were our rite of passage. It was the gauntlet you go through to become a man. So I didn't know another pathway toward manhood or masculinity. And it takes a moment to get a person out of slavery, but it takes a lifetime to get the slavery out of person. There are some conversations that we feel we're not allowed to have. Most Christians can't be seen to have moments when they lose control or even struggle. In these moments, you need someone to go into the deep end with you. Nuance is something you can only find if you're willing to go deeper. And those who are willing are often misunderstood by those who aren't. This is The Deep End with LaCrae. I mean, it's the environment that I grew up in. You know, and the, and the, and the men that I had in my life, you know, the streets were our rite of passage. It was the gauntlet you go through to become a man. So I didn't know another pathway toward manhood or masculinity. I didn't grow up with doctors and lawyers. I didn't even know we could become those things. I grew up seeing my uncles, my cousins, the guys on the, in the neighborhood, and the people who I was most influenced by were gangsters, were gang members, were you know drug dealers. And so to be like them meant to be a man. And it, I, I, I was probably in my early 30s before I realized, like, this is dumb, you know, but it still was so such an intrinsic aspect of my my my, you know, formative years. It took a while to shake it off. You know, they say um, you'll be what you see. You'll become what you beheld. That's what I saw. And that's what I desire to become. And it takes a moment to get a person out of slavery, but it takes a lifetime to get the slavery out of person. So it was a process of me like detaching myself from those realities and those ideologies. People don't like the, you know, the concept of privilege or the concept of nepotism or like they don't, like that concept but the reality is it's all throughout our history it just is what it is it's like hey if your dad is a billionaire you're by and large going to inherit billions of dollars and become a billionaire and that's not like it's just the reality and so in the same regard if your mom was a a drug addict your dad was in and out of jail, the chances are that brokenness is going to lead you toward a life of being a degenerate. It doesn't mean that's the, the rule, but it, to not follow that path is the exception most of the time. And I think people just fail to see that as a reality. Um, we all think that we live on this equal playing field and everybody is you know, has the same opportunities and will get through it. And I know that's not true. And the reason why I know it's not true is because I experienced it as a kid going to hood schools and then getting a chance to go to a suburban school in my last couple years of high school. I know it's not true, right? The stuff that, like my middle school was on, uh, I believe it was Dateline for one of the worst schools in America. My mom said, if I see you on here, I'm gonna light you up. But I remember being in class, man, we didn't have to do anything. We didn't learn anything. We just, we just ran amok. 
right? I remember it like distinctly. And then I remember struggling when I got to this high school because I wasn't prepared for this. I wasn't prepared. No one taught us this. There was no debate teams and no studying, you know, uh, different languages. It just, it was a, it was night and day. So, you know, our experiences and, and what we're exposed to do in many ways shape us and shape the opportunities that we're given. I'll never forget. I moved to Memphis. I was living in, in, um, a neighborhood called Binghampton. It was, it was a really tough neighborhood. And, um, I was doing a Bible Institute and some of the leaders in the Bible Institute said, Hey, we're going to do this mission trip. And one of the leaders of the mission trip was a part of this Methodist church. And he invited some people over to his house, uh, you know, middle-aged white guy. And so we go to his house, this nice house in the suburbs. You know, I'm coming out of the hood, the home that, you know, we lived in. And he's taking his sons. And I thought I was so intriguing, you know, as a, as a young guy myself. I saw his sons who were teenagers in high school, you know, a couple, you know, pretty upper middle class white kids. And, and I said, Hey, what's going on, man? We just sparked the conversation. And I was just curious. I I hadn't had much interaction with, you know, uh, white kids. You know what I mean? Like I had a little bit, but not like extensive. So I was just curious. I was like, Hey man, like, so what do you want to do when you grow up? Um, and he was like, ah, I'll probably be a doctor like my dad. I remember not literally, but it felt like my head just fell off my neck. Because I could not fathom being 16 years old and thinking I could be a doctor. Like the, the quickness and the confidence he said that with baffled me. That that was his reality. Like I thought in my mind, man, that's, that's got to be the hardest. You're going to have to work so hard. Like who would ever strive for that? That's just crazy. That could never be a reality. And the quickness and candor he said it with blew my mind. Because I just had never experienced that. And I knew then that his values were my ideals. And that's what society does a lot of times is sometimes your values are other people's ideals. It's like, nah, it's just something I value. I value a budget. Some people are like, oh man, that's the ideal if I could budget my money, but man. Um, but that's just the reality that we live in. As a black man in America, you know, we, there's no one way to be black, right? I think we're not a homogenous people group. It's like, oh, this is the way you're black. You know, um, white people in America are a combination of lots of things. They're a combination of Irish or Italian or Norwegian. And so if they were to go back to their countries of origin, they would, you know, they'd see like, oh, there's different iterations of me being white. And of course, white and black are just constructs that we've created. They're not like real things. They're they're constructs. Um, but American culture, I mean, I'm, what is there, like 300 million people in America? 40 million of them are African-American. So I'd say at least 100 million to 150 to 200 million of them are probably white Americans. A culture has been created by the dominant or the majority culture. And that that's what happens when there is a dominant or majority culture. And so because of that, you know, the dominant culture will tend to think, well, this is just how you act. 
when the minority cultures will say, no, that's how y'all act. But there's not a recognition that, oh, this is, this is a culture. This isn't just America. Like, no, that's, that's your iteration of America, your expression of American. And so you say, yeah, America, what's America? Apple pie, baseball, you know, hot dog. No, that's your expression of America. You ask a African-American, what's America? Or what's your iteration or your expression? Well, when I travel overseas, what am I missing? I'm missing soul food. I'm missing hip hop culture. You know, there's certain aspects that are unique to the African-American experience. And so oftentimes because, you know, white Americans are the dominant ethnic group or cultural group, they don't realize that people are assimilating to fit in amongst them. They don't realize that this is not how your Indian friend talks when he gets home. This is not how your black friend talks when he gets home. This is not how your Asian friend talks when they get home. This is them assimilating to fit into the broader culture. And so, you know, what made me stop doing that was when I got to Atlanta and I saw beautiful expressions of African-American culture and different iterations. Atlanta has every kind of black person, punk rock, hip hop, intellectual, like whatever, you know, every kind of expression of, of black American. Whereas in some cities I lived, you were either assimilated or hood. It was just one or the other. And so in order to not be mistaken or thought of as like, oh, you're a hood degenerate, people assimilate and dress like the white people dress and talk like the white people talk in order to be accepted. And in Atlanta, you can just be yourself as a black person. I don't feel like I have, like I want to wear a hat and a chain and no one's like, he's a gangster. He's a thug. They don't know. Or they're not like, he's an athlete, right? They, which is what people would think if I were to go to, you know, maybe the middle of Iowa is like rapper, athlete, gangster, I don't know. But in Atlanta, it's, I have no idea who this guy is. I have no idea. And I think that's the, the beautiful thing about authenticity is being able to be your full self and to show up as your full self and not have to feel like I have to assimilate to be accepted. Um, you, cause you don't really see, I mean, you don't see, <laughs> you don't see white people, um, you know, changing the way they dress when they show up to a black event. You don't see that, but you do, will see black people do that. You will see black people change the way they dress. You don't see white people like, oh shoot, I'm going to hang out with my Hispanic friends. Let me develop a more Hispanic lingo. You know what I mean? Like if anything, they, there may be like a condescending, what up dog? You know what I'm saying? Or like, uh, hola amigos. And then that's it. Um, but yeah, minorities are constantly learning how to assimilate. And that's actually a superpower for us because we know the dominant culture movies, the dominant culture music, but they don't know the minority culture things, right? Except for the things that kind of get popularized and embraced by dominant culture. So yeah, I know Shawshank Redemption and I know Top Gun and I know, you know, Taylor Swift, but do you know Mo Better Blues? Do you know Glory or Roots? You know, it's like, those are some old school joints, but you know, do you know Frankie Beverly and Mays? 
you know, the staples in black barbecue culture. Um, and so that's just a, you know, a, a, a reality of life that I've, I've learned to, to navigate. I'll never forget this guy when I was in college, he was a Christian white guy from Kentucky. And he was so adamant about being a part of the African-American ministry as a leader. And, um, you know, he knew his Bible. So they were like, you want to be minister to African-Americans on campus? I mean, shoot your shot. And they let him come around. And what was so dope about him was um, he just he didn't just come in like with the Messiah complex. Like, I know Bible that you don't know. Let me teach you. He came in like trying to serve and and acted like a real missionary would. I'll never forget him asking me like, what movies you grew up on? What, what music did you grow up on? And I told him and he went and listened to it all and watched it all. And then just would dialogue with me about it and find ways to connect those narratives to the Bible. And I was blown away by that. Here's the thing you gotta realize too, what a lot of people don't realize is like, you know, um, minority cultures, specifically like the black community, we are um, very community oriented. So we tend to think in terms of the collective. Whereas like my white friends think in terms of the individual. So my white friends will go to a restaurant and there may be a white guy in there and he's loud and obnoxious and they'll be like, oh my gosh, that guy's so loud and obnoxious, what an idiot. But as black people, if we go to a restaurant and there's a black person in there acting up, we like, man, you embarrassing us. You know, it's a collective mindset because we're, that's the, we think communally, not individually. And so for us, it's like, if I got it, you got it. If I'm hungry, you hungry. And you see that in minority communities. You know, you see like the Asian communities where it's like, hey, no, we're going to live together. We're going to own this collectively. We're going to. So there's just different iterations of it. Whereas I feel like that's that's what God really desires. I think that's what, you know, we can learn from a lot of Eastern cultures in the West is that intercultural, that, that cultural, that, that dependency that community dependency upon one another and not rugged individualism. Not like, and for us, the more money we get, the more influence we get, the further away we wanna be from people. I want a house on a hill with a big gate, with a lake around it so I don't have to deal with people at all. And the reality is, those are the most miserable people. The happiest people live in close proximity with folks and they have block parties and they know each other and they're hanging out. And so, you know, that is one of the beauties Again, it's why we're a body. We need to learn from each other instead of like thinking like one particular group has all the answers and one denomination has all the answers, just on and on and on. There's so much we can learn from one another. And that's one of the things I love, you know, about like Eastern cultures and, and communities and, you know, cultures and communities below the equator is there's a real sense of community and not like isolation and individualism. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I said, I, I said, if you want to go there, I can go there, you know, um, and I got story after story and there's different places I can go. And yeah, I, I brought up prostitution because, again, it's healing and something that I can talk about. So I'm going to refrain from naming names, but I'm going to give you all some detail. I'll give you a, a couple stories, but I'll try to condense it. Um, I used to have this really close friend, man, and we were like, man, we were stick as thieves. Um, his uncle had done a lot of time in prison and um, he'd gotten out of prison and, you know, used to haunt the strip club. 
and he would get drunk and be in the strip club all the time. And so we would go and pick him up from the strip club um, as, you know, 18, 19 year olds. And so in picking him up from the strip club, you just frequent it so much. It's not like appealing to you anymore. You start knowing the strippers and just like talking to them and you know them as like, that's just Teresa. You know what I mean? So it's not a, the same like allure. You know the dark backstories. You know the pimps, and you you just you just get in more immersed in the underworld of it and less enamored with it. Um, and so, man, me and my friend would just you know find ourselves in these sketchy places and just dealing with all kinds of characters. And you know you end up with friends who are strippers and who are prostitutes and, you know, these people become like, it becomes a normal reality. So, you know, at one season iteration of my life, I'm dating a girl who works in a strip club. Um, and man, we're talking and I'm just getting a download. So for me, I felt like I had insight on her backstory and what put her in a position she was in. And, and you know some of her personal struggles and some of her own traumas. And I found myself like really starting to feel like this was so normal that it wasn't a bad thing. You know, that I'm I'm connected with pimps and strippers and prostitutes, and this is just this is just the circle. And uh, the problem is it's like old factory fatigue. It's when you live in a, if you live around a smell so long, you don't smell it anymore. So it's like, I'm around all of this chaos and trauma that it didn't look bad to me. It just seemed normal. Um, and I remember one night, um, and this is, this is, you know, I don't even think my mama know this story, but it's all good. Cause I've learned and I've grown from it. God is good. But one particular night, man, um, you know, we had left one strip club and my friend had hooked up with, you know, this young lady who was a, a prostitute. And um, he was like, man, you know, you, you, you just going to sit here. She got a friend. And I was like, you know what? Why not? Now, I had definitely had a one night stand before I had definitely put myself in positions where, you know, it was objectifying a woman, but I don't think, I don't think my body was willing to shun the reality of the trauma that I was introducing it to. And so I go into this hotel room with this young lady and we're talking and eventually she's like, all right, let's get it going. And I'm like, I can't, like I cannot. And she's like, what's wrong with you? You got a girlfriend or something? Like what's going on? I was like, I don't know. It was weird. But what I know now through therapy, what I know now through so much is, man, you're talking to a guy who had been molested. You're talking to a guy who used promiscuity as a badge to cover up trauma and abandonment as a way to find a sense of love and care. And here I was in a situation where it was like, man, 
I'm not only objectifying you, but like you, you embrace it, right? You, you're not healthy either. You're in a dark place and here we are just two people swimming in trauma and I cannot. I see you as more than that, even though I don't want to acknowledge that in this moment because the old factory fatigue is saying, nah, this is just, this is just old girl. This is just a moment. This is just a thing. And man, porn stars, prostitutes, they all have to do some kind of separation of what they're doing and their reality in order to go through with it on a regular basis. You see it happen all the time. They got to take drugs. They got to create an alter ego, on and on and on. And for me in that moment, my body knew something my brain didn't even know. I didn't know. I was like, I don't know what's going on. But my body was like, you know, there's a book. The body keeps the score. My body was like, this is traumatic. This is trauma. We cannot participate. And, um, you know, it was weird. It was embarrassing. You know what I'm saying? It's like, who does that? Who like has this opportunity and is like, nah, I can't, I can't go through with it. Um, and it, it haunted me, you know, it haunted me for some time, um, because I didn't know what to make of it. Obviously, you know, you're a young dude, you're like 18, 19 years old. And you're like, why am I having issues, you know, with my manhood? So obviously the immature side of me is thinking like, man, I'm less of a man or on and on. But, um, the other side of me was haunted because it was like, what does that mean? You know what I mean? What does this all mean? And now as I look back on it, you know, I realize, you know, that was a young woman who experienced a lot of pain, a lot of hurt and put herself in a, a situation in a circumstance to use her body as a means of profit and gain who didn't see her body as, as, as valuable as it was. And here I was, like co-signing that, tipping my hat to it, saying, yes, that's absolutely right. You are nothing more than, you know, someone to be objectified. And your body is just, is just that. It's like something I could put a quarter in and get what I want and leave. And so I, my heart goes out to, you know, anyone who thinks less of themselves who struggle. You know, there's some people out there who, some ladies out there who are like, man, this is how I pay my bills and I gotta create this separation in order to, in order to survive. My heart goes out to, to, to young women like that um, because there, there's been some experiences that have lied to them. There's been some circumstances that have told them that they are only as valuable as, you know, their body will allow them to, um, you know, accumulate, you know, it's like, I want to earn it with my, my wealth. You hear it in the music, you hear women objectifying themselves because they're like, oh, this sells and this was going to give me money. Um, you see it in relationships. And then as a Christian, you know, I just, I believe they are valuable. I believe, you know, Paul said your body's a temple and in the Bible, a temple is a holy, incredible place that only the priest is allowed to go in. And if the priest wasn't right, he would die once he entered. He had to make amends and atone for his son before he could enter there. So it took a special person to enter that, that temple. Anyone couldn't enter. And I, I always want to remind my daughter, your body's a temple. Don't let anybody just enter there. A priest is, that, that place is reserved for a priest. And that's why, when you're married, you know, that is your priest. 
that is a sacrum, that's a holy, sacred moment where now someone is made right and able to enter into the temple of God, quote unquote, but able to enter into your temple. And it's, it's, it's legit, you know, and, and to take it a step further in, in ancient times, those temples, you know, were filled with prostitutes because they felt as if some kind of way this was symbolic of, you know, it was a form of, of, of worship, but that's how Satan twists things because it is actually a, a form of worship, but it's a form of worshiping the one true God for what he's joined together, not the worship of self or senses or money or fertility, you know, which is what people use it for. So all that to say, man, I'm, you know, there's, I've learned a lot in my seasons in my time and that, that prostitution story that people were hungering for probably is not as uh, salacious as they like it to be, but it, it demonstrates that man, we're whole, I mean, that people are valuable. It demonstrates that people have worth and we're more than our bodies. Is it ever hard for your wife um, to know that you've got stories? Um, my wife is um, one of the most gracious people I know. You know, if there's ever a, a personification of grace and love, it's her. Um, you know, she has been able to see me as a new person, see me in much the same way that the Lord sees me and not as damaged goods. You know, she's been able to see God redeem somebody and transform somebody. And she's been able to embrace that, um, you know, and not look at me as my past. You know, it's obviously not something that we just going to sit around and talk about. Like, hey, let's talk about my wild years, but it is, she does know my story and my history. You know, she sat with me when we first started dating or when we got serious. And I remember, you know, saying, like going through my stuff and feeling this conviction or I don't know if it was a conversation we had or a conversation that I had had or a conviction I came to, but I remember us being together and me getting rid of pictures of old girlfriends, you know, and kind of like, I don't know if they were trophies in some kind of way for me, but it was like, man, let me go through this album and just like, yo, I don't need these no more because this is it. I'm done. Um, but there was one picture of the young lady who I had gotten pregnant and had coerced into getting an abortion. And I struggled with throwing that picture away uh, because I just felt like, man, you know, um, there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame surrounding this. And I remember I just broke down crying in front of her and, um, and I got rid of that picture. Not because I was saying, you know, I'm done with these thoughts and these memories, but because I was saying in some ways, this is me not forgiving myself, me not embracing that God has forgiven me. And by me holding on to that, it was it was kind of like I just needed to continue looking at it to 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 as some form of self condemnation, as some form of punishment for what I had done. And uh, she was just so supportive, man, and she was so loving and gracious to me during that time period. Um, and she's continued to be. You know, I do not deserve her at all. <laughs>
Uh, but I'm grateful for her, man. And, you know, we thrive because of the authenticity and the honesty. Um, that's what makes us who we are. Yeah, what are, what are we most afraid of in being vulnerable? We're most afraid of loss. And so me being vulnerable and talking to my wife about my struggles or my issues or my shortcomings or my failures, um, there's the fear of loss, right? There's a the fear that, man, I, the person I love the most is going to reject me. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's some of us out here who have to face that reality. Like, if you are confessing to infidelity or you're confessing to a murder or some, you know, you got some bodies buried. Like, yeah, I mean, that's a reality that you, you are putting yourself in a position to lose somebody. But at the same time, I think it's, it's selfless to say, man, I don't want to, I love you enough to not have a secret life. I love you and value enough to not hide something from you. And I'm willing to risk it all, not in a selfish way because I need to relieve myself of this guilt or the shame, but more in a selfless way of saying, you deserve to know the truth, right? Um, you know, you hear people say all the time, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. But the truth of the matter is they, they just want to protect themselves from hurt. Um, but they need to know if that's the type of person that they're with. They need to know if you haven't healed from these particular things because you need healing. You know, and and then they can move forward. If 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 a, a woman shows up in counseling and says, my husband's cheated on me. And, you know, should I divorce him or should I stay? Well, to me, that's not a question of right or wrong for staying or leaving. It's a question of is it wise? Right. Is this wise? Is this a man who has, you know, uh, done this heinous act and is willing to do anything and everything to rectify, to become the healthier version of himself? Is he by and large been consistent? And this is something that's like, what the heck is going on? Well, maybe it's wise. Maybe it's wise to to reconcile and to stay through that. And and I would not condemn a woman for or a man for saying, nah, I'm going to stick that out. But maybe this is a person who hasn't grown, who hasn't shown the character or the type of person who would put themselves in a place to be vulnerable in the future, to be honest, to be transparent, to get health, to get help. No, I would say probably, not probably, it wouldn't be wise to stay. And I'm not mad at you for leaving either. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you, your decisions, you, you gotta live with the, the consequences of some of those decisions, right? When you hurt people and when you're honest and you're transparent, but you're still not defined by their rejection of you. That is a moment that costs you something that does not define you. That's not who you are. You're not the person who, you know, got left because of your, you know, your failure. You're not your failures. You know, guilt says, I have failed. Shame says, I am a failure. But Jesus says, I've forgiven your failures. So you're going to have to move forward. 
You don't just stick your head in a hole and live in the ground for the rest of your life. Like you're going to have to move forward with your life and be who God has called you to be. And that goes for anybody in any circumstance. If you are imprisoned right now because of something heinous that you've done, that's not what defines you. You're going to have to keep moving forward. You got 20 years in prison. You don't you don't get to just hang your head low in prison and say, man, I suck. I did this terrible thing. No, you become who God wants you to be in those walls and you make the most of it. So I highly suggest being vulnerable. I highly suggest being transparent. I mean, now talk to your therapist and your close circle about what you're divulging and what you're telling, because, you know, it's not like you need to be telling. Yeah, it's not like I, I need to, babe, I need to tell you I had a weird thought. Like, okay, chill out, bro. Chill out, bro. Now you're gonna stress her out, telling her every weird thing that pops into your brain. That's not helpful for anybody. Get you some better friends. You have that talk with your friends. But things that you know that you've done or are doing that would be hurtful, yeah, man. Come clean.